Here's what you need to know as we continue our story today. Last week we saw how King Solomon turned away from God in spite of the many blessings God had given him. In response to Solomon's unfaithfulness, God promised Solomon that he would tear the kingdom away from his household. This promise was fulfilled in 931 BC when Solomon's son Rehoboam lost the vast majority of his kingdom to a rebellion. From that point on, the people of God would be divided into two nations. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and the line of David continued to rule over it. Some of those kings were good, but most were wicked. The larger northern kingdom retained the name of Israel, and a new line of kings ruled over it, starting with a man named Jeroboam. All of those kings were wicked, and one of the worst was King Ahab, who came to power in 874 BC. It was around this time that God began to confront the kings of Israel through his prophets, starting with a man named Elijah. Because indeed the world was broken just even back then. And so God sent those people, and we call them prophets, who would come and speak on his behalf. And sometimes when a prophet speaks, it stirs something within us. And we begin to see the world in a new way, and we begin to see a a place that we can now fit in and make a difference. I'm sure you've heard a prophet speak and then all of a sudden you were resolved in yourself to make, make a difference in the world that you were in. That happened to a young lady one time. Um, she heard someone speak about all of the needs that were happening in Africa, particularly those around the need for fresh and clean water. She began to hear about different organizations and churches that were trying to, to do this, to, to benefit those without water that you and I just take, it, take, take for granted. And she wanted to come together, and she knew it couldn't be all of Africa, but there was a, a small section within that great continent, a country within that great country, there was a small area, and she began to study to try to understand what it is that that community could use so that the clean water could at least happen there. And she was so passionate and she was so excited. She began to believe, I think maybe we can make a difference. And so she began to share this vision and she began to pull in other people that helped her put the pieces together necessary to try to accomplish such an incredible task. She wasn't just building one well. She was helping an entire community understand what is needed. And they needed these uh, reservoirs where they would then collect water and then this filtration system and then this distribution system. And she had everything working. She had corporations that began to catch this vision and she began to partner with churches. And literally all of this is taking place. Now I'm hearing her tell this story years later. She talks about all the energy and all of the excitement, everything that was needed to put it all into place, and now it's all ready to go. And she says, and it was then that it dawned on her, only then that it dawned on her that she had absolutely no ability to make it rain. And so she essentially stood over this incredibly well-managed and dreamed up Awesome vision casting, all the right kinds of connections and sponsorship. Just sitting there. And she says it wasn't, didn't even dawn, never dawned on her until that point in time how she was completely dependent on something that there was no corporation, that there was no government intervention, there was nothing that could make it rain. You ever been there? You ever been in that moment where all of a sudden all of your hopes and all of your dreams, listen, they don't come just crashing down. They just seem helpless. 
Like somehow something else, someone else is actually needed at a critical moment like that. And what prophets were designed by God to do were to come and to speak at young people, at old people, at kings, at, at, at just merchants, at the young and the rich and the poor, and to speak to all of them and say, I want to remind you of something that you have no ability on your own to control, that there is a God that is in the universe. There is a God that has made all of this. There is a God that has made you and you've forgotten about him. And I'm here as a prophet to remind you that there is a God that loves you and a God that made you and a God that desires so much, not just for you, but here it is, also from you. And you live in rebellion against him. And I'm here to speak the truth to you, no matter how difficult that might be, no matter how hurtful that might seem, I'm here to speak the truth to you about God. And that's what the prophet would do. And I've heard, read in in the Bible, you can read a lot of different stories, but I've even had a chance to talk to a lot of different people, and I even know what it's like to kind of feel like, I never had like a prophet type moment, like, hey, I need you to go speak to kings or I need you. I've never had that. I've never even had like my call to ministry was never God coming to me and saying, I want you to be a preacher. That was, I've never really had that. I've just had this ache inside my bones, this ache that just kind of runs deep in my heart and in my soul that I just am compelled to tell people about a reality that most of us don't want to ever deal with. And that is there is a God that made us and the one that sent his son to die for us. And that he desires deeply for us to recognize who he is and respond to him in faith. And there will come a day where he will judge everyone by the one that he sent to die for us. That is through Jesus Christ. And that compulsion within me has led me to Stillwater, Oklahoma. A place I didn't even know existed most of my life. And a place I'm incredibly grateful for. And I understand what it's like actually to look over people that I love or a situation that I care for and to look up and to just see blue skies and to look down and to just see like parched and empty souls and realize I have no ability to make the spirit rain. I have no ability for for me, like with, with no matter how much I can come up with a really like powerful illustration In the end, there are so many aspects of my ministry that are completely outside of my control. And it's in those moments that that God reminds me that he is. So I want to speak to you this morning if you find yourself somewhat like a prophet who's dealing with people that you love and care for and they're not listening. I want you to talk to you this morning for those of you that are in relationships where you're doing the best that you can. By the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to help you be a better friend, but to be a friend who is a follower of Jesus. There's a fundamental difference there. Who is willing to speak truth to someone that you love and someone that you care for, but you're coming from a Jesus-led direction, from a, from a divine, actually, perspective, and you're trying to the best of your ability to speak biblical truth to them, just like we tried to pray a few moments ago. I want to speak to you, and when you find yourself, literally, you're not even a prophet, you don't even know if you have the guts to speak this out loud, but you're, there's a war that is waging inside of you against a world that is broken. And even though you'll never stand in any pulpit or you'll never stand before anyone of any significance, you feel like there is this war that is waging inside of you. And you're wondering, am I even making a difference in me? 
And we get this morning to deal with one of those scenarios, one of those um, interchanges that we actually have with King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. So what does a prophet do? Some people think what a prophet does is a prophet tells the future. If you guys want to know who's going to win the Super Bowl, I can tell you I'm a prophet. If you want to know who's going to win the Big 12, don't you want to know who's going to win the Big 12? Let me tell you, okay? That's what a prophet does. Other people think, no, prophets don't just tell the future. What prophets do is they let you know that you're doing poorly, like a good math teacher, right? Like they're the ones that want to say, hey, let me tell you one more reason why you're really crappy at what you do, and here's why. That's what prophets do. They just walk around. Prophets of doom. That's all they do. That doom just echoes in the room. That's what a prophet does. No. By the way, prophets speak, and part of what they say might have to do with the future. Prophets speak, and part of what they need to say is just how far we are from what God intended. But really, the heart of the prophet, the mind of the prophet, the purpose of the prophet is actually to remind people that you're in a relationship that you're not being faithful to. I have the blessed opportunity of performing a number of marriages, especially over my long ministry. Um, it's, been, it's absolutely been a joy to sit down with a young couple that are really, really excited about marriage, and I love to let them know it's not going to be anything like you think it is. I love to remind them that, by the way, I mean, how are your parents doing? And they love to remind me that the parents are usually in a terrible marriage. And I'm like, and why will yours be different? And they, uh, that's a good question. I've never really thought about it that way. It's interesting how I, I love to be a prophet in that moment. And, and what's interesting is that I'll spend a number of hours speaking about how they got here, about their dating relationship, about all of that. And then we love to get dressed up and invite all the friends and we, we, we have the, the wedding. And then I kind of disappear. I don't purposely check out. They move, I move. Like just things change. What I probably should do, literally, starting now, is I, I probably should say, hey, we need to meet in five years' time so I can find out how you're doing in your covenant relationship that you made. Right? Looking at some people that have actually married. We should probably do this, right? I think this would be a good idea. We should do this. Because it'd be good to be reminded. Now, remember when you said that? Like, I promise to love and I, I promise to, to vote myself to. I promise to be a faithful husband. I promise to be a faithful wife, to put you before all others. One couple that I was marrying, they were both getting ready to go to medical school. And I remember thinking to myself, and I told them a number of times, you know, you're about both ready to go to medical school. And that can be a really great opportunity. And the but two of you, I can see you being so successful. Be careful that your job doesn't become, because right now, you're not getting married because you both are going to have great careers. You're getting married because you love one another, and you want to you honor God in your marriage. Don't let these wonderful things called careers destroy your covenant relationship. And they looked at me and said, oh, we won't. I don't know. I really don't know. I know that you, you, you see more than this in them, but... Now that you have kids, are they now the center? Are they now the ones that kind of just kind of set the direction of the family? Like, be really, really careful. And by the way, now that she's got her focus there, now you better not start looking to work because let's remember what your covenant was before God, to love one another until death do you part. It'd be good for a prophet to do that, don't you think? Just to remind people of the covenants that we've made. 
to be able to say to those families that now have children, or remember, like there's a, a covenant relationship that you have as a father and a mother to love your chi- children. We're getting ready for a, a baby dedication where we actually come and we don't christen children, but we do pray over them and we, we, we challenge parents. You, many of you have done this. We challenge you to raise your child in the Lord and it would probably be good for us to come back two, three years later and say, hey, are you still doing that? When we, we have an opportunity to, to, to baptize a young child, say eight or nine or 10 years old, because they have it all figured out, which by the way, is not why we baptize people. We don't, we don't baptize those. We don't initiate into the kingdom those who have it all figured out, but those who know enough that they need Jesus. And we even remind parents, now listen, so much is going to kind of rely on you. It might be good for us to come back like every year, every other year, just say, hey, can we just talk about this covenant relationship that you made with God and let's make sure that we're still on the same page. Prophets are needed, but the problem is, is that if everything is going well, you'll welcome my presence. Hey, let me tell you how great our marriage is going. Hey, can we meet? You don't want to meet? Things not going well. You don't want to talk? He doesn't want to talk. He never wants to talk. Oh, it's going that poorly? Yeah, I don't need someone coming into my life and letting me know how poorly I'm doing. Like, I got enough of those people in my life. I'm married. I've got a job. I don't need one more person giving me like an F on my evaluation. You know what I'm saying? And so I can even feel sorry for the prophet that has to do that. A prophet that has to come in and say, hey, I'm, I'm here to give you a, a kind of some a divine words from God to let you know how you're doing as a king. Do you know the difference between a good king and an evil king? According to God, the difference between a good king and an evil king? How about this? Like a good king is one who understands economic systems and is able to create prosperity for his people. A good king is someone who understands the political ramifications of treaties, and he's able, he's got good, like, foreign affairs. He really is really good with foreign diplomacy. Is that a good king? What's the difference between a good king and a bad king? Well, here's how the Bible describes it. We're going to be going through a number of uh, chapters within 1 Kings. So turn to 1 Kings and begin in verse 16. We are going to be describing, going to be looking at one particular king, King Ahab and Elijah's interaction with him. And in 1 Kings 16, I love how, this is the reason why you, you can actually do the timeline so well, is because it lists in so and such and such a year, uh, the king did this. And so we're able to kind of piece these things together. So 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 says this, in the 38th year of King Asa, this would have been actually Rehoboam's son, which would have been King Solomon's grandson. Relatively good king. He's in the southern half. He's in the, Jude- the, the, the nation of Judah, okay? 38th year of King Asa of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, look at this, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. What? Didn't understand political affairs? Didn't understand good economics? What, 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 was he, what was so evil about him? And as if it had been a light thing for him, meaning it was, no, it was not hard for him to do this. I love that statement. As if it was a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who, by the way, is the first king, like David loves to be compared to, for those that were noble, for those that loved God with all their heart. Jeroboam is the one who loved idolatry, who loved trusting other gods, who loved, and and put it in like kind of a, a terms that might both 
explain and maybe even scare you a little bit. He's the kind of guy that just wanted to cover his bets. Like spiritually speaking, knock on tin or metal or aluminum, whatever it is. Like let's just cover our bets. Like, you know, like let's have, let's have all of the gods kind of bless our time here. Which by the way is not a bad idea if there's lots of gods. But if there's one God that doesn't like you to think that there are lots of gods, it's not a good thing, right? So notice what he says here. It was not a light thing for him to walk in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, still not a popular name, by the way. Jezebel and Judas just never really made it, you know? Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, or Ethbaal, right? Do you get that last name? Ethbaal king of the, the, the Sidians. And he went on and he served the Baals and worshipped him, and he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is what worshippers of Baal like to make. He had built this in Samaria, and then Ahab made an Asherah. Asherah is like the goddess that helps us connect to Baal. So there's this goddess that fits under. Baal is like the big god. Asherah is like the fertility god that helps us connect to the big god. And Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is kind of the way it's described. Ahab does a lot of bad things. It's interesting right now, um, and I only, you know, I've only been alive now for 49 years, and so I've had 20 years of ministry experience. Six of those, I was actually teaching college students to go out and to be ministers, and it was really during a fun time, uh, at least I thought it was a fun time, um, because there was this new movement of recognizing the deeper socioeconomic, political factors that are happening in the Bible. So everybody was writing about the socioeconomic implications of the Roman Empire on the gospel. And let's talk about the socioeconomic implications of what's happening. And by the way, they picked on, on a very real truth, was that, that much of the prophet's condemnation of the kings of Israel was the injustice that existed against the poor. And so there has been, rightly in many ways, a, a new emphasis, say in the last 40, 50 years, where people are saying, you know what God has wrong with the world? The injustice that takes place. And so we've got a whole generation of justice preachers that are preaching against injustice, and, and it's all legit. And the church had for a long time forgotten the injustices that are taking place, and just how a just God feels about injustice that exists amongst his creation. Problem, though, the more that I'm reading through this as I prepare for this series, um, the Bible does occasionally talk about that. The prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they actually talk about that. Like Ezekiel describes... One of the major problems with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was that they did not care for the poor. It's listed right in the prophetic texts. But what happens when we begin to believe that really the, the problem that God has with everyone and everything is the injustice that exists? And we fail to recognize where maybe that injustice comes from. If you go back and you read the historical narratives, there is injustices that take place. But where do they come from? And this is where I think we have lost something, is that we have lost the offense that exists in the Bible when people, particularly those who at some level consider themselves to be followers of Yahweh God, who decide to sell out and serve other gods. 
Because when you go back and you look at the accounts, there are social injustice issues, but the primary injustice that has been done is first, God was robbed before any poor person was. And that's one of the reasons why, if I could go back and kind of regain those six years teaching, I would love to say, yes, 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 we need to rise up and we need to call out injustice. We need to do those things. But the problem is, is that if all we do are try to address and fix and manipulate social justice issues and we never deal with the root cause or the overarching idea that it is idolatry that gets us there. If God is Baal, if God is Asherah or Moloch, then injustice becomes a natural way in which we live. But if our God is Yahweh, then everything is fundamentally different. Fundamentally different. And all you're doing is spitting in the wind if what you want to do is create a world where you pretend there is social justice, which is most likely just a version of you or me or us, our understanding of what it is. But God comes and he speaks this amazing truth. He says to the people of Israel, when you sow into your fields, when you begin to plant a harvest, make sure that when you're reaping your harvest that you don't reap everything. Make sure that you leave much around the edges for the poor. Why? Because I am Yahweh, your God. Any questions? Baal never asked him for that. Asherah never asked him for that. God did. What's the difference between a good king and an evil king? Interestingly enough, I know this sounds too reductionistic. One recognizes Yahweh God for who he is and responds. And everyone else will bow to just about anything. And when you'll bow to just about anything... Manipulating and exploiting people is just the natural outcome. And that is why it is so important for us to realize that true change happens. Fundamental change happens. Systemic change happens when we recognize not just how we're acting with one another, but our relationship before God. Because if not, it's just a matter of time before this one breaks down. And so the prophets are the ones that come called by God, sent by God, to go to those who are not getting it, those who are not understanding about injustice or about divine robbery, and they come in and say, I just need to point out something because you don't seem to be aware of this. Now, the, the conversations and the confrontations that happened between Ahab and Elijah are many. And most often, Ahab had to listen to him, so Ahab is in his court Ahab is in his court, and while he's in his court, Elijah would come in and say, hey, let me tell you five more things that you're doing bad today, King Ahab, and do I need to hear this? Do I need to hear this? And finally, it just, the, the relationship got so tense, it was like, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you, and so Elijah is somewhat um, elusive, and King Ahab can't get his hands on him, but he's still prophesying, and then there is this drought that God promises, and Elijah gets to say to Ahab, by the way, for three years, in a nation that is so dependent upon the floodwaters that come two times a year, so dependent on these, God, Elijah, word of the Lord comes to Elijah, tell King Ahab, he's getting nothing. See how Baal does that. See what Asherah can get you, nothing. Now Ahab's nowhere to be seen, and Ahab's, or Elijah's nowhere to be seen, and Ahab is getting very, very angry. After the three years are up, Elijah shows up, and he meets another prophet named Obadiah, and he says to him, go tell King Ahab I want to meet with him. And Obadiah goes, I'm not doing this. I know what you're going to do, Elijah. You do this all the time. You say you're going to meet him, and then you don't show up. And I don't need to be the one standing there. And Elijah said, I'll show up. And he does. And the two of them show up, and it's the one story of the Bible that you know probably very, very well. 
it's now at that Mount Carmel experience where uh, they are going to erect these two altars, the prophets of Baal and Yahweh, uh, under, under uh, Elijah's leadership, and these two altars are set up, and where is fire going to come down? So that's what's about to happen. But before that happens, Ahab and Elijah get into this confrontation. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, look at verse 17 and 18. There are two kinds of trouble that exist in the world, and I think it would be good for you, good for us, to be aware of both of them. So when Ahab saw Elijah, verse 17, he said to him, is that you, troubler of Israel? You're the one that brought upon this drought. You're the one that caused all these issues. You're the one that keeps talking about all these bad things. Elijah, you're the problem. Boy, that's so typical, isn't it? Let me remind you how you're doing wrong. Let me remind you how you're doing poorly. Why are you so negative? I just want to show you, son, you have like five F's on your report card. See, Dad, that's the problem. You're just not supportive. What do you want me to do? Well, you need to say, look, son, you have five F's on your report card. Is that going to help? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? See, the prophets were actually seen as troublemakers. That's why most of them were killed. That after speaking the truth, they were killed. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Elijah turns it around and actually says, listen, although that you want to believe that I am the one that causes the trouble, the truth is I'm not the troublemaker, you're the troublemaker. All I'm doing is pointing out the failure of you with the covenant of God. Why am I the bad guy? Moms and dads, you know how that feels? For those of you that are like good friends, not just like Facebook friends, but Christian friends, Ones who are follower of Jesus type friends where you say, listen, like as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't act like that. Like as people who are devoted to God, like we don't act like that. Why are you always doing that? You think you're better than me? No, I just, and don't, like after a while, don't you just hate being the troubler of your friends? Don't you hate responding to every critique on Facebook and just like, I'm just going to let this one pass. I can't argue one more time. Have you ever looked at those relationships closest to you and just thought, this isn't working. It's falling on deaf ears. I'm done. Is that you, troubler of Israel? Hey, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. And actually, both are true. Both are true. Ahab is obviously the true troubler of Israel, the one who has, by his policies of idol worship, have caused God to teach Israel a lesson. But Elijah is truly the troubler of Israel. He stands as like a fork in the road. He stands as this glaring stop sign that says, listen, this, this is not good. This isn't good for you. This isn't good for anybody. And I'll tell you, I hate being the fork in the road. I hate being, hate being the stop sign. I'd rather just, you know, I won't follow you, but I just, I think I might just step to the side for a while. I'm just tired. And if it's not even going to make a difference anyway, then what's the point? Is that you, troubler of Israel? No, I'm done talking. Have you ever uttered those words? In a relationship? 
Have you ever felt that in terms of looking at the world and just go, man, like I quit. I'm not voting this year. It's not going to make a difference anyway. Like I'm done speaking out against that. Truly, if that's the way they want it, they can have it. It's our constant struggle. Our constant, constant struggle. Now, it would be different if every time we did something, it seemed like it was working for us, but that's actually not the case. You know the story. The fire comes down on Elijah's altar, and the prophets of Baal get nothing. And Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal, over 400 of them. And then you would think, okay, and now, and then there was a revival, and then everyone loved the Lord, and they all went to heaven. No, that's not how it works. Look at chapter 19, beginning in verse 2. When Jezebel hears this, hears this terrible news... Look what happens, verse 2. Jezebel hears the news of all of her prophets being killed, and so she says, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life, speaking about Elijah, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he, Elijah, was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which, by the way, is about 80 miles away which belongs in Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's interesting. I don't know how much he is afraid to die as much as he is afraid to live. Like, I'm just done. I'm at the end. Now, interestingly enough, an angel comes to him at this moment and refreshes him, and then he travels 40 days and 40 nights all the way down to what is known as the Mount of God, Mount Horeb. And that is where he encounters God after wrestling 40 days and 40 nights with this incredibly heavy burden. I'm a prophet, and nothing is getting better. Even if I come off this mountain experience, Jezebel is still queen and I don't think I can do one more day of this. And that's when God enters the scene. And I know that what you probably want me to do is have God come in, kind of like your mom, with cookies and milk. Heard you had a rough day. I'm here to help. My mom would do this often when I was a kid. I'd be going through this really dark time, and my mom would come in, and she'd made fresh bread. Interestingly enough, that cured about half of my rough days. Other times I'd say, Mom, it's way more complicated than that. It's about a girl. And I probably won't be able to eat bread for a couple of hours. So I just need to sit here and kind of reflect on that, you know? Like, what does God do in this moment? He comes to Elijah, his prophet, and his prophet is at the very, very end. He wants, he's begging for God to take his life. What does God say in that moment? I find this very, very interesting. What does God say in this moment? Here is Elijah's complaint. 1 Kings 19, verse 13. And behold, there came a voice to him, and it said, are you ready? The caring, compassionate voice of the Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They throw down your altars. They've killed all your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And now they seek to take my life, to take it away. God, I don't know if you know this. I just don't let you know where, like, where the score is. It's the fourth quarter, and we are losing so poorly that if I'm not your quarterback, it's over. There's nobody left, God. 
and he is disappointed, and he is angry, and God is there. And then God steps in, and he does something that God does so well, is he helps him see rain. He helps him see rain. He helps him see that even though it's dry, and even though it's dusty, and even though the hearts and souls of men and women have grown stale and cold, that there is a plan that God has that will not stop. I love this next verse where God speaks to him. Look in verses 15 and 16. Again, God being the comforter that he is, he says to Elijah, go. (laughs) Return your way. Meaning, the way you came, go. And then, you know, I'm not going to read all of the rest of all of this, but he essentially says this. And by the way, on your way, you're going to meet a man, and his name is Hazael, and I want you to, to anoint him. He's going to be the king of Syria. And then you'll continue a little further, and you're going to meet a guy named Yehu, and I want you to anoint him. He is going to be the future king of Israel. And then as you keep on going, before you get home, you're going to meet another man, and his name is Elisha, and I want you to anoint him. He is, by the way, going to be your replacement. Now go. I've read this story over and over and over again, and I have to just think to myself, how does that help Elijah? Elijah let God know that everything that he's been doing has been going rather poorly, and God's answer is, hey, by the way, on your, on your way home, will you anoint these three people? Okay, how does that help me? Here's how it helps you. It helps you because you now get to understand, Elijah, one of the most difficult rules that every prophet needs to understand is that God's plan is bigger than every single one of us. Every single one of us. God's plan extends further than us. That every single one of us, if we were to have a timeline, every single one of us would have a beginning and an end. God's does not. And you've got to come to grips with the fact that one day you and I will die and our inbox will still be full. Are you okay with that? I think one of the greatest fears that we have is somehow dying before we get everything done. Like, God, I can't die. I mean, I, need my, I want to see my kids grown. Okay, well, they're already grown. Well, now I want to see my grandkids. Now I want to see my great-grandkids. Now I want to see my great-great-grandkids. Like, God, I can't die. I've actually worked so long at Sunnybrook. And I mean, it just seems to be kind of, just be kind of going along. Like, you know, I want to I see that day where everything is just like rolling. And by the way, God, I, I think if I'm not here, I don't know if it ever will. One of, one of my favorite thoughts, truly, I know you'll think this is bizarre. One of my favorite thoughts, here's how I play it in my mind. I don't know exactly when but I'll die on a Thursday. And, and then I, I begin to kind of play it out. So I'm dead. It's Thursday. I'm dead. And they call the staff and the elders get together and they go, hey, okay, Jim's dead. Who's going to preach Sunday? And Paul will probably go, I will. I've been here the longest. I'll preach. Okay, great, Paul. Why don't you get up and say something? And Paul will get up. He'll give a message kind of near the end. He'll say, hey, by the way, we won't be seeing Jim here anymore, you know? And I'll tell you, that is like one of my favorite thoughts. Because if not, then everything is really dependent upon me. Like if not, like the, the, the opposite of that actually scares me to death. Like I find great, I know you're going, why are you telling me this? It sounds so depressing. Okay, I got a better one for you. Everything, all of your relationships, everyone that you know, our country are all dependent upon you. How does that make you feel? You got it? You got it? 
You got the whole world, and man, if you, if you don't fix this, if you don't, you know Africa's going to die, you know, if you don't go over there and save it. No, is it? Africa's, God's got Africa? I think a lot of the anxiety and the terror that exists inside of you is that you don't know exactly how you're going to live when you realize that you're the only one, and if I'm the only one and there's nobody else, and God goes, hey, 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 hey. I got this. Quit stepping into my job. Quit stepping into where I need to be. God says to, to, to Elijah in a very clear voice, he says in 1 Kings 19 verse 18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you think you're the only one, you're not. And the more that I see people, particularly young people, the youngest people and the oldest people, absolutely terrified at where the world is going is because they do not understand this principle. It's not up to us. Listen, that doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. When God says, I want you to anoint um, Hazael, it's because you should see what Hazael does to Ahab. He really sticks it to him. Jehu, by the way, not only sticks it to Ahab, but then literally kills his wife Jezebel. And Elisha does an amazing ministry that even exceeds that of the great prophet Elijah. Those three names are the answer to Elijah's prayer. Because Elijah had to learn, I I can't sit here and just pray for me and pray about me because it's not about either. It's about him. To come to grips with ideas like that are, are really, really important. Now, I know there's a time that every one of us has to realize it's time to wipe the dust off my sandals. It's time to walk away. I'm not saying that every fight is worth fighting all the way to the very end. No, there's still a wisdom to know. And the prophets knew when to literally leave people to themselves, God would do the same thing. We always think about God's judgment as coming with power and strength. And, oh, I can't believe Jim just said that. Stand back. Lightning's going to strike. One of the scariest things God and a prophet can do is just walk away. And so sometimes prophets would do that. Sometimes what a prophet would do is realize there's a time to die fighting, and they would go down in a blaze of glory. And other times, it's just time to die faithful. No matter what I see, and no matter what happens, no matter who gets on board, I am going to do what God has called me to do. And I'm now okay with the idea that I might die with my inbox rather full. And someone else will have that. It's not my responsibility. It's when you and I step into God's responsibility that we get the most frustrated. Just trying to figure out a way to make my kids love Jesus. You can show them Jesus. I'm just trying to find a way to put an end to, you know, something as simple as sexual slavery in the world. Yeah. All things that we need to speak about, all things that we need to address, and all things that God has under his complete control. Do you believe that? See, my wife says I I get this wrong sometimes. There there was a moment, you probably heard me tell the story, it fits very well here. There was a time when I looked at my children, and I know that she thinks that they were way too young, but I thought they're four and two, they could figure this out. We're getting ready to go on an airplane, travel for the weekend down to Louisiana, and I said, hey, mommy and daddy are leaving on Friday, we'll be back on Monday. And then I realized, I can't promise we'll be back on Monday, so I had to explain to them that we may die in a plane crash this weekend. (laughs) 
Andrea said, not, not the right time. Not the right time. And I'm, she might have been right. Maybe we should have waited until they were like five and three. <laughs> but can I tell you what I was worried about? I was really worried. I mean, I'm mean, genuinely concerned that should something happen, the last words that my children might remember are me promising something I have no control over. Daddy can make it rain. Daddy can fix this. Daddy will be back. And then that whole view of what daddy said and could not do would somehow be transferred to God. And it scared me to death. I wasn't trying to scare them. I was actually trying to give them a sense of peace that no matter what happens to daddy, no matter what happens to mommy, like the king of the universe is still king. Okay, six and four. But you know what I mean? Here's my favorite idea. I want to close with this. You don't even need to turn there. You know where I find this true is that those who were really are followers of Jesus Christ, I mean, if anybody had a great statement at the end of their life and if anybody said it, well, it was Jesus, he is on the cross and his final words according to John are what? It is finished. See, Elijah can't say that. Elijah can't say that. David can't say that. Isaiah can't say that. Jeremiah can't say that. Interestingly enough, like, could Peter say it? Could Paul say it? Could John say it? Jesus could say it. Actually, now that I think about it, after Jesus has said it, maybe John could say it. Maybe I could say it. On that Thursday when I die, God says, hey, I'm taking you home tonight. Wow, so I'm not even preaching Sunday. Can you let Paul know? I think I'll be able to say, I guess it wasn't up to me to see my grandkids. Like, I guess that's not my purpose I guess it's not up to me to see Sonny Brook do blah, blah, blah. I guess that, that wasn't what your plan for me was, God. I, I trust this. Because Jesus said it's finished, I'm okay with saying, I guess it's finished. And I can sleep peacefully. Here's how Luke says it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 57. I love this statement. Stephen the prophet is yelling at these um, followers of Judaism and he's letting them know about how badly they've messed it up. And just like the prophets of old, he is condemned. And this is how Luke records it, Acts chapter 7. And they cried out, these are those who are being rebuked, the true troublers of Israel. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears because that's what people do when they can't hear anymore from prophets. And then they rushed at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They killed him. Done. Stephen is dead. Let's see what you can do now. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Boom. Now, for those of you who don't know who Saul is, you're not getting this. <laughs> Who's Saul? Isn't that fascinating? Thought you were done. That's why Stephen can stand there and say, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God receives him and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Saul continues the task. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder of what you have called us to do and the fact that you will sustain us through it. God, thank you for the peace of the truth that comes 
that my children and grandchildren, my nation, are not up to me. They are up to you. They are left in your hands. God, help me understand the role that I have as prophet, as priest, but not as king. And so I thank you for that. And may the peace that you desire for us come from a realization that you are so much bigger than us. And may that cause us to truly serve you faithfully and joyfully. May that decrease the anxiety in my heart and come to peace. For you alone are God and you alone can make it rain. Amen. If you want to continue this faith conversation, I would love to continue it with you. There'll be others that will be up here. Um, also, Women's Encounter still signing up in the lobby as well as Israel. And our 101 meeting is today. So if you did not plan but would like to know more about Sunnybrook, what it means, we are meeting in the hub. We've got lunch for you. Even if you haven't signed up, we want to encourage you to come to hear more about who we are. We really do love you guys, and we will see you Wednesday night.